Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and I'm joined today by Joe Moglia. He is the former chairman of the board at TD Ameritrade and the former head football coach of Coastal Carolina University. Today, Joe is one of the top speakers on the topic of leadership, and he's received the Ellis Island Medal of Honor, the Sharp Trophy for Leadership, and he's been honored by the National Italian American Foundation, to name just a few of his accolades, of course. So, Joe Moglia, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Corey, I'm delighted to be on. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure, sir. And you've got such a great story of kind of going from point A to point B. And I love your honesty when I've seen your your speeches and your talks about your life. Now, I do want to begin, though, with when it comes to your your football coaching at Coastal Carolina University, you do have a philosophy that I know it was something that you instilled upon the team, but it also translates into everyday life. And that is this policy philosophy of no rules one standard. So I would love if you can explain a little bit, what is the philosophy of no rules, just one standard? Okay. So at Coastal, we built the program on two basic thoughts that were concepts, frankly, that nobody else in college football does. And the first deals with rules mm-hmm. and most coaches and most sport teams have rules all over the place and we don't have any, but we certainly didn't when I was coaching. And the objective was, well, we may not have rules. We have an incredible standard and that standard is to stand on your own two feet. You take responsibility for yourself. You always treat others with dignity and respect, and you live with the consequence of your actions. Now, as a football program, I've got about 120 players, another 20 or so coaches, interns, analysts, but they're all male. Mm. So for that team, for our team, ban became our mantra, be a man. But it's not some tough macho guy. It's a a real man. Look at BAM as an acronym for leadership. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the same standard that I raised three daughters on. That's the same standard, by the way, that I used in the business world that I would have expected of my executives or their people, regardless of male or female. So um, I'll give you a little background on this, though, Corey. My very first head high school football job, I I had just turned 22. It was Archmere Academy. At the time, it was an all-boys Catholic school in Claymont, Delaware. Same Mm -hmm. school Joe Biden went to. Oh, okay. It was gotten out a few years before I had gotten there. And in that playbook, this is 1971, so it's 51 years ago. Mm. What I just said to you is written in that playbook. All right, so uh, I believe that that made sense. Now, by the, back then, by the way, I did have rules, but that was still the standard. And I thought it made a lot of sense. Now, over the span of the last five decades, whether my personal life, the way I raised my family, or treat others in my personal life, the way I have conducted myself in the business world and what I would have expected from the people that I work with and the philosophy upon which we built Coastal Carolina football, that's been it. So over five decades, I believe that this has really been a competitive advantage mm. and something that has differentiated me or us from others. Right, right. And so your story, though, before you got into business, if I'm not mistaken, so you had a 16-year coaching history before the MBA program that you entered? Is that sort of the trajectory you were on? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. That's correct. 
Yes, yes. Well, so I was curious about that because I do know that part of your story is that you were, I think there were 26 MBAs, the number was, and they're like, you know, 25 of them basically all sort of had the same background as our MBAs. Yeah, right. And one was a football coach, the other were all MBAs. Right. You were the football coach, the odd man out. However, you apparently turned that into you were the most productive and successful Merrill Lynch. I guess, employee at that time with high productivity and you stood out. So I was curious to know, what did you take from that time of football coaching? Like, what was it about the world you had come from that you were able to then just easily parlay into a business career and be so successful? The typical MBA at the time came from Merrill Lynch only recruited the top MBA programs in the country. Mm. And they tried to recruit the best MBAs of those top programs. And uh, typically back then, before a really well-known university would take you in the program, they expect you to work a couple of years in the business world. So the typical MBA was probably 27 years old. Some of them married, some not. A few may have had a child. Mm. Uh, but by then, after 16 years, I was married and a father as a teenager. I put myself through school. I had multiple jobs to be able to do that. I had four children. I went through an entire career. I wrote a book on football. I went through a divorce. I grew up in the streets. So while I didn't have the academic pedigree that my classmates did, I had already lived a life that most of them had not yet come close to mm. on. So I knew how to handle myself under stress. I had been a leader in the, in, the, in, the, in the world of sports as a coach. I made a living as a football coach. So the experiences I had and the skill sets that I had were actually skill sets and experience that gave me a significant competitive advantage, even though I didn't have the academic pedigree that the other there were 26 of us, 25 MBAs and one football coach. Well, I didn't have that pedigree. Uh, I did have a life pedigree that the others didn't have. So Joe, part of your story is your honesty about your childhood growing up in a very tough neighborhood, including there was gang activity, you know, not an easy place to, to grow up, I guess. And you were also part of that at the age of 13. And you tell a story about how your mother got sick and you vowed that if she could recover, that you would change your ways. And I was wondering, is that when your trajectory changed or was there some other incident or was that the moment for you that changed your life? That was, that was I was 13 then. And you did a good job of doing your homework on that one, Corey. Uh, we had a family meeting. We never had a family meeting as I was growing up. And it was about mom had to go in the hospital. And seven of us lived in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment in the Dighton Street section, which was a gang area in New York City. Mm. And uh, I noticed dad had been crying. He was, I, he was at his bed. He was kneeling down. I thought he was saying his prayers, but he wasn't. And I asked him what the matter was. And he said, he's worried about mommy. And I never saw my dad cry mm. ever in his life. And so I really thought something was very, very seriously wrong with that. So that night, I remember going to bed. And my mom was an Irish immigrant. She was the only person from her family ever to come to this country. Nobody else could afford it. Mm. Her five children were her entire life. Dad was a good person, but not always the easiest guy to live with. And we were everything to her. And, and it hit me that this had to be very, very serious for my father to be uh, this upset. Right. And perhaps her life was on the line. And I remember thinking that I never told my mother that I loved her. Mm. And uh, that's when I prayed, if, if, if she can, comes back, I promise you I'll never make that mistake again. And I didn't. Now, that was one thing. That did that. This other thing I'm not particularly proud of, but in eighth grade, once a year, we would take a trip to Rye Beach to school. And it was a Catholic grammar school. And seventh and eighth grade, the boys and girls were separated in different classes. And the guys decided 
we were very good at sports because half the guys have been left back once or twice. So like <laughs> our guys in eighth grade were like 14 to 15 years old. <laughs> right. And uh, but we decided we were going to drink. And the guys decided that I that we should have the girls take it for us because nobody's going to uh, think of them. And I was the one to have the girls do that. Mm. And bottom line is we got caught mm. and I wasn't allowed to graduate with my eighth grade class. And you know, I have been, if not the best student, certainly one of the best students in my entire career, my mom really counted on me. And for me to have done that and disappointed her and my father really broke her heart. Mm. The combination of those two things, especially going to high school, everything I kind of wanted to do from then going forward was I wanted to make my mother proud. Yeah. And it's the combination of both of those things that really came together for me then. Yep, I agree. And I'm so happy that you did change your life. But I agree that that one thing, when you can remember the honor of your parents and the mother and father that you want to make proud, it's amazing how that can sustain you and make you do the right thing in life. And, and that's kind of, again, why I relate to your story. I feel very similarly that for the rest of my time after I kind of messed up, I said, you know what, the rest of my time here has to be the accountability, which you also talk about and making this right so that the people who love me are proud of me. So I really love that part of your story. And another thing I thought was interesting, I was curious to know how you bring, well, I asked you about what you brought from football to the business career. And then I began to think about the reciprocal. And I wondered, was there anything then from like the business world? Because you did go back to coaching. And was there anything in the business world? You're like, you know what? This is in reverse now. I learned some stuff that I can take over here to coaching. What do you think? I began in my Wall Street career as an institutional bond salesman. I, I, I was good at it. But eventually, my real talent, I think, while I was a good bond salesman, I think that my real talent, what I brought to the table was leadership. Mm. And as the industry started to go through more difficulty, Merrill Lynch started to go through more difficulty, I think the firm recognized that. And I started to move up relatively quickly in the executive management ranks. So as I did that, I recognized that I couldn't be a micromanager. I recognized that I needed to have a well-thought-out strategy that could handle contingencies, mm -hmm. but it needed to be simple enough that whether it was 100 people or 5,000 people, that they'd be able to execute that plan. Right. Same thing in coaching, by the way. I also recognized that it was my job. Remember, this mantra was still standing on two feet, take responsibility for yourself. So too often, I know leaders, whether coaches or uh, leaders in the business world, things are not going well. And they'll say, well, I went over that 10 times with that group. I went over 10 times with that person. They just don't get it. And once you say something like that, you're subconsciously letting yourself off the hook because you're making believe it's their fault. It's not their fault. Right. You're the one that's responsible for communicating. So if they're not doing it right, there's something wrong. You're communicating in a wrong way. There was some, something about that. So th that became very, very critical to me. I uh, simplify enough, but communicate in a way that people really truly understand. And if they're not getting it done the way they should be getting done, those are facts for why for the fact that they don't get it. So, right. to, so, so that'd be a piece of that. With that, too, I learned that people learn different ways. So the way we learn dominantly is visually, auditorially, or kinesthetically. So we hear it or we see it or we I touch it, feel it, do it. People le learn, learn different ways. Mm -hmm. And we had what we called the VAC test, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. And where individuals would be, while they might be able to learn different ways, they were a dominant learner one particular way. Right. So if somebody's a kinesthetic learner and I'm talking to him all the time, he or she may not get that. So as a leader, these are the things that kind of came together for me, a real ability to delegate, but still hold accountable. So I was, especially as a head college coach, 
I was a much better head college coach because of my experience as a pretty senior leader in the business world. Mm, okay. So, I was definitely better in one because of the other, and I was better in the other because of the one. You know, and that's also tied to when you've mentioned the true test of leadership is when a person performs when things are not going well. And I know that's also sort of like, you know, when things are going great and you're getting all the accolades, you know, that's that's wonderful. But the true test of leadership is what you do when things are not going well. And I like that philosophy as well. Explain a bit more about that. Well, it's, it, I think it's true in life in general. So it's a family and everybody's happy. Everybody's doing well. Everybody's doing well in school. Nobody's running away from home when they're 15 years old. <laughs> Everything's good. You have a football program and, you know, you're winning your games and uh, you win a couple of games you're not supposed to win. Everybody's happy. You're in the business world and you're breaking records. You're gaining market share. Your earnings are increasing. Everybody's happy. But everybody's happy in those situations. And the sign of a real leader is how you handle yourself under significant stress. So what happens when? You find out that your daughter might be pregnant. What happens when you find out your son ran away from home? What happens if you find out your partner was seeing somebody else when they shouldn't be doing that? What happens if you've got seven guys injured on your team and you've lost the last five games and there's a lot of pressure for you to be able to win? What happens if you take on too much risk, like the world did in 2007 and 2008, the financial crisis, and your firm blows up? How do you handle things then? How do you handle things when things are not going right? The great leaders step up and they figure that out. And that's what separates a leader from somebody that, that, that that's really, really substantive. That brings me to another question I want to ask you just as we wrap up. One of the things I discovered about myself when I was in my 20s was how financially unaware I was. I mean, I literally, I was financially illiterate, quite honestly. I mean, I had maxed out credit cards without really knowing even what an APR was, right? I just knew that I could hand this piece of plastic to someone and walk out with the stuff. And I find that young people, especially today, seem like they're a bit more savvy. But do you see any trends as far as like the interest in younger people today or the the more um, younger people today being a lot more financially literate than maybe past generations? Or do you see that they still also need to have some help in this area? Or what do you see like kind of the, the current young generation when it comes to financial literacy? Now you're striking a real chord with me. I, I, the typical family in this country spends more time planning a vacation than they do managing their finances. And managing your finances is really, really pretty important. In fact, our mantra when I ran TD Ameritrade was we want to bring financial literacy to every family in this country. Mm -hmm. It was meant to be aspirational, not about us. It was about others. With regards to what, what, so I think people just by definition, with the technology being what it is, the internet being what it is, we have much more information today than we've ever had before. So I think there's a little bit more of awareness of what's going on in terms of the financial world. But then you have companies like Robinhood Mm. that uh, encourage you to do, you know, not going to charge you anything for a trade. If you can only buy one share of stock, that's okay. You only buy one share of stock. And so that gets people more involved, younger people more involved with regards to money, which that by itself is great. But not if you don't understand what you're doing, not if you're just playing roulette, Mm. not if you're just buying something, you hope it goes out and you're going to sell it tomorrow. No, you've got to understand what happens if if you were familiar with the meme stocks and kind of what happened with GameStop and some of them. You know, you're buying the stock at 50 and it goes to like 300. Well, you still own it at 300. It went up 300 like in two days. And so where's your risk management skills? So there is a greater awareness, certainly in terms of trading stocks than what there has been before. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same as managing risk. That's not the same thing as really understanding what your financial uh, situation is and what it looks like. I think we're never going to get there until a grammar school, like in eighth grade, you have classes that teach you how to budget. 
to teach you how to take some responsibility for money. Same thing with regard to high school, some sort of really a, a course in, in not just economic, we're talking about the economy and comparing our capitalism to communism, but where you really start to understand, you know, well, what is the stock? You know, how do you, why is it important to manage a portfolio? When you have some money, why is it important to save? Why is it important to, to do some of those things? So we should be teaching that at a university and a high school level and even an elementary level, much more, uh, 10 times more than what we're doing today. Mm. Now, I think our educational system is remiss for not doing that because yeah. I think a lot of our people miss that. Wow. I love, you know, I, I absolutely love that because one of the main things with me that I really try to talk about often is how I got through that myself, how, you know, luckily I have a partner who is in private wealth management, right? So he looked at me in my, my situation. He goes, you know, this is a mess and we need to make sure you understand why it's a mess. And we have, and I took like, you know, a good long time understanding why that was a problem to, you know, how I was paying on my credit card and it was never going to the principal was paying on interest and things that we just didn't have. But I think what's really important is also being, uh, from a minority community, there are more examples of people in certain communities not having those conversations just because of the socioeconomics that they didn't have anyone to teach them that also in their world. So I think it's a twofold problem. It's like, I think it should be universally taught, but then I think there are certain communities who also really would benefit. No, number one, I could not agree more, but that's also because of lack of education in terms of what we're talking about now. Mm -hmm. So suppose like in eighth grade, you know, every inner city school really, really is teaching something about savings and budgets and yeah. why. And in high school, as a sophomore in high school, why even if you may have a credit card, one day you're going to have a credit card. Why you don't want to get maxed out on what 18 percent interest? Really <laughs> yeah. means. Oh, gosh. Right? Yeah. No, so, so again, that's where I think our educational system should, should pick it up. Mm-hmm. So for Ameritrade, our mantra was bring financial literacy to every family in this country. I think as a family leader, even if it's a single parent, and I don't have to be that sophisticated to understand that money and how you manage your money does matter. It does matter. So number one, you want to be able to get a job. Number two, you want to be able to save. So it's still the responsibility of the leader in a particular family to make sure that the kids, as they're growing up, at least understand that that's important. That doesn't mean they have to be sophisticated in the financial world. It means that they have to understand it matters and they can't ignore it. Mm, yeah. So again, so what does it go back to again, Corey? It's the parent or the leader of the family, or the individual, or the kid, or the school, even the community taking responsibility. Yep. I think it's in inner city for the community not to wait for the school to do that. Mm-hmm. And they create their own classes. Yeah, It happened at church, or they happened in some community center. It happened and then in the schoolyard, where they, they teach these types of things to their kids. But too often, it's somebody else's fault we have a problem. And therefore, they're not taking responsibility for themselves. And therefore, they're not necessarily treating others with dignity and respect. It's always somebody else's fault. Yeah. So you go right back to BAM and taking responsibility for yourself and, and treating everyone with respect. It really, really yeah. works. Absolutely. That's what I think is so fascinating. And all the aspects of life that we've discussed, it comes down to personal accountability if you are going to be successful and live a more contented life. So, I mean, all these lessons make perfect sense. And for our college age audience, I mean, they're going to be members who are 18 years old, who are just starting out in college all the way through to the non-traditional students. So they could be up to 60 years old. And all the lessons yep. that you're sharing, they cross generations as far as fundamental life lessons that people need to survive. So we definitely appreciate them. Words That's of it. wisdom. Words of wisdom from Mr. Joe Moglia. And we really appreciate all you have to say, sir, because you know what? 
these are the conversations that I love to bring to our listeners. But I also have to say, full transparency, I gain a lot from them personally, too. I love these conversations because um, they inspire me as well. So thank you for the inspiration and thanks for being here today. And we're both ways that I'm flattered you got me on. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.